Go, guys. Um, let me get this. Ready? Just um, getting all my stuff ready. Eh? So, boom. I am so fired up. The communion was so good. I, I'm not going to lie. I was very teary-eyed. That's a very powerful um, communion message that really drew us closer to um, the cross and God's love. Now, all around the news, we are covered with this whole news about the virus and people biling toilet paper and all of that stuff. And I was thinking, man, this is such a big downer on all of us. And while I was tasked to do this whole sermon on Genesis 30, I was like, this would be the perfect thing to get our minds off of what's happening in the world and just dig deep into the scriptures. And for you, who do not know what Genesis 30 is all about, man, you are in for a treat. By the way, just saying hi to David. Um, David's recovering very nicely, so don't worry, Dave. We've, 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 got, we've got it here, and, and God's got this. Um, so for those who, of us who are new, and for those of us who are just visiting, we are doing this whole lesson of the whole book of Genesis. Now, I know this is International Women's Day, and while I was reading this scripture, this is in no way related to the women at all. Okay? Okay, so just to be sure, we are doing this one chapter at a time. Okay? So people, th this is a good analogy that the whole book of Genesis is divided into seasons. So we are in season three of Genesis. And as we continue on this third episode of this book, it appears as though this would be one of the weirdest, if not one of the most difficult passages to preach and explain. But that is why I love the Bible. And if you look into this verse in face value, it would look like an episode of Desperate Housewives. I don't know if, if some of you have, have read it, but hey, I've, 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 I've seen it before and let's just bear with us for a while, okay? But God, in all of his wisdom, and all of his knowledge inspired the writer of this book to put this weird, unusual story so that we can take something out of it, right? And to convict us on God, what, what, what God wants us to hear. So before that, let's do the right thing and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful service and for this wonderful time and for this wonderful day and for this wonderful group of people that is here to worship you, Lord. As I stand here to preach, Lord, may the Holy Spirit be with me, Lord, to guide me and to convict all of these people, Lord, and, and including me, Lord, for, so that we could learn something out of this verse, Lord, and we could take away something out of this so we could use this in our lives and to draw us closer to you, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my Creator. Amen. Amen. So, let's get this ball rolling, and let's open to Genesis chapter 30. I'm not going to put it there because it's such a long verse, so we'll do this very quickly. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. And right then in verse 1, it says there, When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I'll die. Wow. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I 
in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Billah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Billah as a wife. Jacob slept with her. And she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. And we have to take note that when Rachel said this, that God has vindicated her, it could just possibly be her own interpretation of this. All throughout Genesis, the author will clearly state if God was at work, if he mentions it. Let's continue. Rachel's servant, Bilak, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. Now it's Leah's turn. She doesn't want to be outdone. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her son, a servant, Dilpa, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Dilpa bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpa bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, now this is where it gets really weird, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? And we can see this bitter rivalry between these two. Rachel said, very well. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So... When Jacob was in, the, in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. And Leah said, you must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. While I was reading this, I was like asking to myself, what on earth are these mandrakes? And why would you trade your husband for this? Must be good, but anyway. So God listened to Leah. And she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant um, to my husband. So she named him Adakar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Some time later she gave birth to a daughter and named her um, Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Jacob's flocks increase. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Joseph said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served, and I will be on my way. You know how much I've worked, um, how much work I've done for you. And we, we, we go to this weird second part of this story, and it's about spotted animals. 
But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages and I will pay them. And we can see here that Laban clearly wanted Jacob to stick around. He was offering Jacob anything for his services. But Jacob said to him, You know I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I, have, I came has increased greatly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. If you know genetics and you've been through farming, it is a known fact that if you breed white and black, spotted or colored, the result would most probably be colored. And if you look at it, this is such a good deal, right? And Jacob said in this verse, And my honesty will testify for me in the future, whenever you check on the wages you have paid for me. And if you consider Jacob's character, that's funny. That's a very funny comment coming from that guy, right? Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark or colored will be considered stolen. Laban said, agreed. Let it be as you have said. But Laban was very clever. He wouldn't give it, even give Jacob a chance to prove his honesty. That same day, in this verse, he said, He removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats and all the dark-colored lambs. And he placed them in the care of his sons. So that basically left Jacob with, with nothing. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob was continu- continued to tend for the rest of Laban's um, care. Sorry, I've, I've lost track. Whoop, it's gone. Uh, branches, no animals to go too fresh. Oh, yeah. Agreed, so for the three day journey. Okay, then let's continue. It says here Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches. And what's interesting enough, they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streak and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put with them Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the trough in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. That's very clever of him. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. 
Wow! That is such a weird and unusual verse. And I don't know how to explain it, but interestingly enough, if you look at the whole context of the Bible, right, we as Christians believe that the Bible is one unified idea that always points to God and always points to Jesus. So let's go through this verse one part at a time. And my, faith, my, and my first point is God's correction. To put this verse into context, let's go back to the start. We have Jacob, who was smitten and totally in love with Rachel, and he decided for her to be his wife. Now, unfortunately, he was tricked by his uncle Laban into marrying his older daughter Leah, right? If you remember the previous verse. Jacob loved Rachel so much that he persevered and basically worked for another seven years. If that's not love, I don't know what is. So to cut the story short, it was unfortunately a love triangle. We've got Leah on your right, the eldest of the two, who was the unloved one because basically he was tricked into marrying her. And we've got Rachel, who Jacob desired. Oh, wrong one. How do you do this? Now, with God's infinite wisdom and discernment, instead of using Rachel, he used Leah to be the main source of Jacob's lineage. If you look at the previous chapters, that lineage, by the way, was God's promise. And that God's promise was, out of your offsprings, I would bless and I would make to be the descendants. And I would make it so numerous that it would be spread all around the globe. That was God's promise and that was God's original plan for this weird love triangle, right? Now, Leah... In God's plans conceived Reuben, next was Simeon, and after that was Levi. And after that was Judah. Interestingly enough, in accordance to God's plans, Judah was the tribe where Jesus comes from. Now, if you've been with us for this past few months, you would, you would see this trend in humanity. God has a specific plan for man. Man isn't happy with it, takes it into his own hands, and all throughout this book, we can see the consequences of it. And it's usually pain, suffering, death, and destruction. <laughs> in the start of this chapter, we can exactly see that. In verse 1, Rachel became jealous of Leah when she was blessed and became fruitful with her kids. It wasn't enough for Rachel that she is the one that Jacob desires. And we can see the downward spiral from this. She took it upon herself to fulfill what she wanted instead of what God wanted it. In verse 2, even Jacob knew it wasn't right, right? Jacob even said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? But Jacob did it anyway. And this reaction and this actions resulted in the consequences. She became the mother of her servant's kids, Dan and Naphtali. Now, interestingly enough, Leah followed suit. It's interesting to note that unlike Rachel, Leah already has kids. Leah has uh, is, is the mother of four beautiful kids. Leah already was a mother. But why did she follow the same tactic as Rachel did? And we could argue what the motive is. Maybe because she didn't want Rachel to win. 
And to make matters worse, she applied superstition and mysticism as well. Now this is where this stuff comes in. Now if you don't know what this is, these are mandrakes. And I'm not very familiar with it because a single guy, I don't know how, what, what this is all about, but this is what I kind of like research on. So in ancient customs at that time, it's mainly believed to be the whole purpose of increasing one's fertility. It's mentioned in Songs of Songs, and it talks about this exotic smell, that if you smell it, and it is used to increase your sensual powers. And if you really think about this right, there's no scientific basis of this, or this is, this is all about mysticism, and this is all about tradition. This is the same pattern of people who disregard God's plans and take everything into their own hands. It compares to what Abraham and Sarah did, right? But this time, it's even worse. This time, they're using mysticism and superstition. Think about it, right? If you look at these passages, all of the people, what they were doing, these are very flawed men and women. People who used deceit, like Jacob's character, people who used selfish pursuits, like Rachel, when she was very jealous of Leah, people who used superstition, in the same way with Leah, and yet God still listened to them. And what's important is, he made the most of their mistakes. From the consequences of these actions, God used these children to form the remaining five tribes of Israel, and two more from the line of Jacob. Look at, this, look at these guys. Look at all these faces. And these children weren't perfect too. I mean, have you seen Isaacar there? I don't know if it's clear enough, or Dan, right? But God still used their mistakes and used it for his purpose. We've got the tribes from Dan, Seems like a, a very normal looking tribe, very usual. But as you read through the book of the Bible, this is the tribe where Samson comes from. A very prominent judge and also my ultimate fashion guru in my hairstyles. <laughs> and we've got the tribe from Naphtali, Gad and Asher, who the Bible talks about significantly. And we've got the tribe of Isaacar. In Chronicles, Isaacar was described to be the tribe as the men who understood the times and knowledge on what Israel should do. How often would you get called to be the tribe that understood the times and knowledge of what Israel would do? And this tribe played a very important part with this also famous woman character called Deborah. I managed to put the international women's plug there. I got you back. I got you back. And we've got the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe who was a fierce, strong, loyal fighting force of King David and the reign of the judges, and most notably, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. God used something flawed and something imperfect and to turn it into something more godly. If you look at this verse, uh, if you look at this picture talking about something so flawed and imperfect, this is the Taipei 101. And it's a very huge building in, in, in one of the countries in, I don't know, Taipei. But if you look at this, 
It is so high and it's so very huge that the winds and the earthquakes, it's very prone to sway around. Now, if you, if you think about this, right, man has made such a huge structure that from afar it looks as so it's, 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 it's very amazing. But at the core of it, it's very imperfect. If you face it with nature, it would sway back and forth to the point of almost damaging its structure. Now, man had to resolve that fact by putting a 728-ton globe in the middle of the building. And it acts as if it's like a pendulum. So when the building goes here, that massive globe would automatically counter it so that the building would sway to the right place. And if you think of it, if you think about it, right, that is what God is doing in our lives. We sway back and forth in our faith. We sway back and forth when times are hard. And why do we do that? Because we are flawed people, but God swings us back into place. All throughout the Old and New Testament, we could see the exact same themes from Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah, to Noah, all throughout in this story and the rest, God wants us to correct our lives. If we look at the makeup of our lives, right, aren't we littered with different imperfections, struggles, and issues that are not with God's plans? All of us have made some really knuckle-headed decisions that prioritized work, family, or relationships over God, right? All of us have struggles of having this mindset of being too self-involved over being outward focused, right? Or is it just me? I I, I don't know. (laughs) But like in this passage, God is gracious. But at the same time, God is willing to work with you in correcting your life. What's interesting about this chapter is even though these characters are flawed, God still listened to them. In verse 17, after all the things that Leah did, God still listened to her. In the succeeding verses in verse 22, even Rachel's selfishness, God still remembered her. One of the things that we could apply in this verse is, wouldn't it be awesome for us to listen to God too? Let's listen to God and let God correct us in our lives. Fast forward to the New Testament, and it has become more clear how God is doing that in our lives. And God is doing that through the Holy Spirit and through scriptures. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 6 to 9. And it says here, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Knowing that we've got a massive force inside of us, just like that big ball in that building, wouldn't that give us encouragement? Shouldn't that make us excited? 
knowing that we have a God that is gracious enough and patient enough with our mistakes, it should give us this sense of gratitude, but at the same time, it should make us want to be corrected, right? In this verse, it says here, if we claim to be followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, this verse is saying that the Spirit should be with us. Our minds should be governed by the Spirit. Anything other than that is a mind governed by flesh. What does a mind governed by flesh look like? Hostile to God. Disobedient to God's law. We are disciples of Christ, right? Can I get an amen on that? We aren't hostile to God's law, right? We have the Holy Spirit inside of us to correct us. One of the ways to know this is how do you respond to correction? This is where it gets intense, eh? It's like, this is where you get, this is where you get the, the, the feelings, eh? Do you respond with hostility or do you respond to it with an open and humble heart? I love our church. It takes people who really follow Christ to the core to be truly humble and listen to what we've heard recently, especially last Wednesday. To truly dig deep to the core of our being and look at scriptures and just let the spirit work within us. It's not easy to hear rebuke that we are not prioritizing God, right? It's not easy to hear this concept that we are not faithful to him, right? But at the same time, that's what we needed to hear. Can I get an amen on that? Because at the end of the day, who are we kidding? We are all flawed, imperfect people. But as disciples of Christ, this shouldn't discourage us. It should encourage us because we have the Spirit working within us. God is trying to correct us. Let's be open to correction and let the Spirit work inside of us. Now, on to my next and last point. Faith equals to reliance. Now, this is where the spotted sheep comes in. In a classic tale of being an underdog, Jacob was totally one in this story. After two stints of serving Laban, Jacob is finally free. But this freedom comes with a price. When Jacob was free, that basically left him with nothing. If Jacob leaves, that would basically leave him with no flocks because everything is technically under Laban's scare. He made a deal with Jacob, but interestingly enough, Jacob declined. And instead, Jacob had a counter offer. Jacob bargained that he would still work for Laban for a certain amount of time and in turn of all the speckled animals would be his. After that deal was made, before Jacob even had a chance to prove himself, Laban underhandedly took all of it and put all those animals in the care of his sons, leaving Jacob with no spotted animals, with nothing to start off. Now if you think about this, it's quite odd that Jacob refused Laban's offer in the first place. That offer was quite good. In verse 28, Laban said, Name your wages and I will pay for them. It's the human equivalent with, What do you want? I'll give everything so that you could work for me. Think about that in your workplace. What do you want? Name it. You want to work for me? 
all good, I'll give you this hefty salary. This implied that Jacob could basically have anything. But what caused Jacob to refuse? Jacob could have spent, uh, could have went with the easier route. Laban offered him this huge good of, good of a deal. But instead, Jacob went to the hard route. God wanted him to start his own family in order for God to bless it. But you may be wondering, what does the speckled animals have to do with it? So let's open our Bibles to the next chapter because Jacob will answer that. It says here in Genesis chapter 31, verse 10 to 13. And Jacob, on his dream, he said, In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you appointed a pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once, and go back to your native land. Jacob had so much faith in God that he used what God was saying in his dream to his advantage, and pulled through an ingenious deal with Laban. When Laban underhandedly did some trickery, you can actually see God still pulling through this. Even though all the animals were all just white, right? Because Laban took all the streaked and spotted away. What happened? In verse 39. Oh, how do you do that? In verse 39, it says there, They mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. In a flock of whites, what was born were streaked, speckled, or spotted. That could have only happened with the help of God. Speaking of with the help of God or with this kind of story, in 2005, for all of you who, who are Americans here, raise, raise your hand. Yep, there's, there's a couple there. In 2005, all of us knew about this U.S. housing market. And I'm not familiar with that because I wasn't born there. But this, there was called this housing bubble. And in 2005, there's this man called Michael Burry, and he was this huge investment banker. He was the one of the first who noticed that the U.S. housing bubble would crash. Now, because he was so convinced of it that he bet all of his money in his investment company against the U.S. housing market. Now, he used this term called a credit default swap. And basically what he did was he bet against the housing market that if it would tank and if it would burst, he would gain a lot of money from it. Now, if you look at it today, that, have, that would have been a no-brainer. The housing market unfortunately collapsed, leaving a devastating blow on the U.S. economy. When Michael Burry made that decision, his clients grew very angry and very fearful of his decisions to the point where he almost lost his company. Two years later into his gamble, the U.S. economy did eventually tank. It was a huge payday. He earned approximately $500 million out of it. Michael had to stick to his guns because he believed that 
on what would happen amidst all of the persecutions around him. In the same way, that was what Jacob must have felt when he made that agreement with Laban, right? With those two choices, Jacob chose the more difficult route, the choice that made the least amount of sense, the choice that would have been perceived as less secure, the choice that in the worldly view was giving up everything all up to chance. But but it is the choice that relied mostly on God, right? If we were Jacob, would we have made that choice? This whole idea to choose God, even though it's uncomfortable, even though we feel pressure around us, even though we feel the tension in our hearts. It's even quite comical to see Jacob grappling with his decision. He used even superstition in how he selected his choice of branches, right? But still, the only way that Jacob and even Michael was able to make those decisions is because they've made it because they were so sure that it would happen. In Michael's case, belief that the um, U.S. economy was going to collapse. Grim analogy, I know. And in Jacob's case, belief that God will be the one to provide. It wouldn't be considered a risk if you're convinced and know what you're really doing. You wouldn't go all in to something unless you're absolutely convinced that it is happening, right? Believing that God indeed will pull through with his promises will result in reliance. And in this verse, you can see God actually pulling through, right? Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene, it's very clear what Jesus was preaching as well. One more verse, and this verse, let's hone into this, and we can see what it's all about. It's open to John 15, verse 5. And it says here, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Are we committed in our faith that we would put ourselves in situations where God can work through us? Do we put ourselves in situations where we say, man, there could possibly be no way that I pull that off. How can we apply this teaching concretely in our lives? Do we make faithful decisions? In our decisions, do we rely on self? Or do we rely on God? When you make this decision, does this make you tense up? If yes, that's good. It means you're stepping out of your comfort zone. It means you're not relying on yourself, but on God. For careers, do you make career choices based on personal security or for spiritual growth? Think about it. In relationships, do you put value on your relationships based on how it can please you or how it can call you higher to God? In parenting, do you set yourself apart from the patterns of this world and actively pursue a Christian household? Resist that temptation. In the long run, your kids will love you for it. In outreach, For those people who are having trouble with your outreach, do you settle 
within your comfort zones or do you actively step out or cast your nets wide and let God use to make disciples? As we sum it all up, let's think about these two points. Let's think, point one, do we actually, and if you think about it, do we in point one, I think you were a point. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So in point one, do we actually think of God's correction? And in the second point, do we actually lean on God and totally commit to his faith? So those, th- those are the points that I'm thinking about. And then... Um, so, so that we can grow and we can be better people and better disciples in Auckland. Amen. Amen. Amen.